Reshaping America, Kurt Flewelling here. Impeachment Saturday. Anyway, um, yeah, we got to do impeachment. Um, it seems to be uh, what we have to do every week, right? Um, I'll try to go through it as quickly as I can. Um, I, 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 it's, I'm, I'm telling you guys, it is, it is a surreal experience to watch this. Um, I, I never really thought with a hundred percent certainty it was going to go, you know, at this pace and through and, and, and Nancy Pelosi is doing it and we'll, we'll get to, um, her press conference or whatever you want to call it this morning, which was pretty, um, man, it's pretty interesting, but, um, Impeachment um, has moved to the uh, Judiciary Committee. Our friend Gerald Nadler, who has some experience doing this. Um, so they interviewed uh, who they called experts, Noah Feldman, Michael Gerhardt, and Pamela Carlin. And uh, they were obviously folks that were selected by Democrats, um, Trump haters all, who... Um, according to uh, many things that I've read, um, were talking about impeachment before Donald Trump was inaugurated. Um, don't really get that. Um, they call them witnesses, which is really bizarre because they've witnessed nothing. They, they're making assessments, uh, judgments uh, on second, third, fourth hand uh recollections and scenario. It's, it's really just quite bizarre that they would even use the word witness. But, um, anyway, Jonathan Turley was the lone, um, Republican, uh, person that they put out there and he's obviously not a Republican. Uh, and I, and I think, um, anytime, and I've said this on the show several times, anytime someone criticizes Donald Trump, who is not a, uh, <clears throat> a, a Trump devotee, didn't vote for Donald Trump, didn't necessarily care for Donald Trump or, or may not have ideologies um, consistent with, with some of the things Donald Trump has done. I think we should really pay attention to folks like that. Um, Jonathan Turley fits into that category. Uh, another name that comes to mind, Alan Dershowitz, a, uh, a libertarian um, who historically um, has been quite liberal. And I know that that term gets bastardized and redefined every few years. But, um, when, when folks like that, who are not necessarily Trump devotees in any way, shape, manner, or form forward, the opinions they have forward about Donald Trump and this, um, and this, uh, whatever you want to call it, impeachment inquiry, which seems to be, um, hurtling very fast toward a full on vote, um, or uh, to impeach and then a trial in the Senate. Um, I, I think we should listen to these folks. Um, the aforementioned three experts, if you want to call them that Feldman, Gerhardt and Carlin, um, it was, it was pretty amazing. Our, our friend, Matt Getz, Congressman down in Florida asked them, to cite an impeachable offense and none of those three brainiacs could come up with one. And herein lies the problem. Um, this article that I'm reading from is a, uh, it's actually not an article. It's an opinion piece. And why does, why does everybody have a, a really hard name to pronounce? But anyway, um, Hans von Spockvisky, Spockvisky, something like that. Um, this was on a foxnews.com. It was uh, an opinion piece. It says Democrats weak impeachment case not strengthened by anti-Trump law professors. And, um, you know, I'm not going to bore you with all the details. It was, it was really, it was pretty amazing that um, the three of them were frothing at the mouth, chomping at the bit, any other terms you want to use to, uh, to come out of the gate and, and, without even really trying to hide their visceral disgust of Donald Trump, um, which really as, as pundits have asserted does not bode well. If you're trying, if you want to indict the president on one thing or another, I, I think you, you, you have a better shot at it 
if you're a little bit more mild-mannered, tempered, reasoned, if you will. And I know Nancy Pelosi knows this. Um, she uh, lost her speakership uh, years ago, and Republicans were in control for about um, 12 years, and she got it back in 2006. And one of the ways she got it back was she handpicked a lot of Democrats in various districts throughout the country that were just what I'm speaking to. They were very reasoned, mild-mannered. They weren't crazy. They were kind of centrist, and uh, they got elected. So I know she knows how to play the game, but certainly these three individuals um, were were none of those things. And um, so I'll read a little bit from this article. Um, the uh, Republican, as they say, witness, Jonathan Turley, um, or, or actually, let me back up, the um, <clears throat> the writer of this opinion says that he encountered uh, Professor Carlin several years ago when she published a law review article making uh, patently false claims about the supposed lack of enforcement of the Voting Rights Act by the Bush administration. And um, and this is the money line here. He asserts uh, she started talking about impeachment uh, over Trump's business ties before he even took the oath of office, which is very telling and a, a very damning thing if, if you want to put somebody up there that's quote unquote credible. Um, the author continues, Turley, a self-professed excuse me, liberal, told the committee he voted against Trump in 2016, not even voting for him. I think that's noteworthy. I mean, some people abstained from voting. This, this gentleman did not not only vote for Donald Trump, but uh, presumably voted for Hillary Clinton, um, pointed out that the House is moving toward impeachment on a record composed of a relatively small number of witnesses with largely secondhand knowledge. And that is um, that is the big thing here. Um, this other article I have, which kind of goes uh, with that, Jonathan Turley tells lawmakers if they impeach Trump, it's your abuse of power, not his. And um, Mr. Turley says, I can't emphasize this enough. I'll say it just one more time. If you impeach a president and make a high crime and misdemeanor out of going to the courts, which was what Donald Trump um, has done in order to stop um, a lot of these things, he's defending himself. It is an abuse of power, Turley said. It's an abuse of your power. Um, And he goes on to say, you are doing precisely what you are criticizing the president for doing. We have a third branch that deals with conflicts at the other two branches and what comes out of there. What do you do with that? Um, this is the very definition of legitimacy, Turley said. And um, he uh, he says he was the only witness called by Republicans to testify. Um, and he goes on to say impeachments against former President Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon came from clear, undeniable crimes that were committed. And there, there's the big contrast there. Um, this is innuendo. I heard this guy say this, and this is what I think. Um, none of the witnesses in this day and age of, um, you know, trying to grab somebody's attention in a very distracted world, none of these uh, witnesses before the three law professors and including the three law professors were any degree of compelling, endearing, relatable, um, they, they were all just, um, they, they all failed. And the Democrats' plan here is, is, is very similar to many plans they concoct um, to, to bring Donald Trump down for the last three and a half years. And they, they just seem to fall short. Um, I, I don't mean to put Donald Trump in the category of uh, John Gotti, but he is certainly Teflon. And I'm not implying in any way, shape, manner, or form he's done anything wrong because I don't believe he has. But whatever they do, whatever they try to do, whoever they recruit to do it, it's just falling short. And it's falling short for a whole host of reasons, none the least of which is a lack of evidence. But um, as Senator Santorum, uh, who I've uh, quoted numerous times on this show, they always overplay their hand. They cannot help themselves. Uh, they froth, they get excited, they go for the jugular. And when you when you hate, and when you're that throttled up about things, it's really hard to conduct the business that you're trying to conduct, which leads me to Nancy Pelosi just making some very bizarre statements this morning. I heard her um, sounded tired, sounded very off. Let's just be kind. Um, I know James Rosen, who was uh, a, a former Fox uh, contributor and, or Fox News employee, 
that um, was on the wrong end of Barack Obama and ended up having to uh, to defend himself in court and then um, sue because he was just being absolutely harassed by the president of the United States and other surrogates. Um, and he came out the other side um, smiling. He asked Nancy Pelosi, um, do you hate the president? And she didn't really like that comment too much. Um, he didn't pull that out of uh, the air. He was dovetailing off Professor Turley's comments that the hatred for Donald Trump has blinded people to process and um, led them to have a lack of evidence or a lack of respect for proper procedure and structure, which he is correct. So James Rosen just dovetailed on that and said, you know, Nancy, do you do you hate Donald Trump or do you think that might be part of the problem? And she took uh, large offense to that. And, and this is what I take offense to whenever Nancy Pelosi is asked a very pointed question. Um, she seems to kind of fall back on the God card. She uses the word pray quite a bit. Um, I'm praying for uh, the president. Uh, I'm, I love, I'm a Catholic. She uses the Catholic card when she needs it, which is very convenient. And, um, you know, I be clear there, there are many leftists or social justice warriors in the, uh, Democrat party that are Catholics. Um, so the, the Catholic church and, um, uh, Catholics in general don't necessarily agree on a whole lot and don't step um, in lockstep on many issues, but I, and I'm not Catholic, but I, I do find it to be extraordinarily defense or excuse me, um, uh, offensive when Mrs. Pelosi says, um, she prays for people and she's a Catholic and she loves, she doesn't hate when the record clearly, I, I, I can't tell you if she prays or not, so I'm not going to go there, but the record clearly indicates that she, um, does hate and she's venomous and many of the things she's said and done and how she's legislated and how she's presided over the house, um, is not even remotely Christ-like. And, um, and if I'm a Catholic, I'm offended. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to say it, you know, I, she says she's not a hater and she loves, but she doesn't love unborn babies too much. I know that is a fact. I know that rubs people the wrong way, but you really got to say it the way it is. And um, I have stated on this show and in, in a, um, a book I wrote years ago called Reshaping America, um, the Christian left or the social justice left, uh, sometimes they're one and the same, are very, very dangerous individuals because they pick and choose Bible verses and principles of God, which they agree with and conveniently um, and are selectively either outraged or not outraged by other verses or scriptures or social injustices. So um, uh, consistency is is what I'm looking for. And I think the social justice left is very scary. And to make a declarative that you are a lover of people rather than a hater of people when your record on abortion and several other things that I'm not going to go into is, is flat out abysmal is really offensive to me. So um, she didn't like that question by James Rosen. Um, I take her at her word if she's praying for Donald Trump. I, I would love to be a fly on the wall and hear what those prayers are all about. But um, anyway, we, uh, we're we going to try to move on from the impeachment thing. One, th- one more thing I do want to say about um, Professor Carlin. Um, she took a cheap shot at, um, at Donald Trump's son, Barron, and tried to make a funny. Um, and I'm not going to go into what she said, but she, she did try a, a feeble attempt at a joke. Uh, saying, you know, Donald Trump may, you know, I'm paraphrasing wildly here because I don't have it in front of me, but he he may name his son Baron, but he's not a a king that appoints barons or things of that nature. A a, a nonsensical, feeble attempt at, at a joke. And many of these eggheads are so socially clumsy that they don't understand that these things are not funny. Um, regardless of loving or hating Donald Trump or being against him or for him, these are some pretty serious things that are going on and monopolizing our lot, a lot of our time. And there's lives affected and money in the balance and our constitution in the balance and liberty and freedom, all sorts of things roll into this. And to be making jokes like uh, the left was making all sorts of jokes about Kavanaugh and to be up there as a presumed expert when you are a known Trump hater, I said the word hate again, um, 
And then you start making really weird jokes about Baron Trump and Donald Trump. Um, you don't get it. You just don't get it. So this is one of those things where the left is is really shooting themselves in the foot with everything they're throwing. And it's very reminiscent of, of several things um, that, that have come up and gone and, and been blown away by Donald Trump in the past three years. They always come up short and they're not going to get it. They really aren't going to get it. Miss um, uh, Carlin there was so much backlash by uh, people, uh, none the least of which was Melania Trump, um, defending her child, um, that uh, Mrs. Carlin uh, put forth an apology. And it, it reads like this. I want to apologize for what I said earlier about the president's son. It was wrong of me to do that. And, and here's where the cluelessness comes in again. If you're apologizing, you just put a period on the end of that statement and then you move on. But she's not apologizing because that's not in her nature to do. So ill advice or what? No advice. She goes on to say in her apology, I wish the president would apologize, obviously, for the things that he's done that's wrong. But I do regret having said that. Um, That's not an apology. That's somebody put a gun to her head and they went into her office and said that was a really um, there's some blowback with the um, with the Baron Trump comment. Could you apologize? And and I'm sure that there was some bristling on her part, but um, that's not an apology. So um, we move on. Uh, It's going to go to the Senate eventually. Um, I've stated uh, many times before, I I do not understand or I I don't know what's going to happen with these individuals in 30 to 50 districts, particularly about 31 districts where Democrats flipped the district and they were districts that Donald Trump won by anywhere from five to 20 um, percentage points. I don't know how they vote for impeachment and move this thing along to the Senate um, and keep their jobs as um, as representatives. I just don't know what that looks like or how that looks. I'm, I'm not privy to backroom deals or any of that stuff, but um, it is absolutely political suicide in districts such as the ones I've just mentioned for those people to uh, vote to impeach Donald Trump. So uh, it's going to go to the Senate eventually. This thing keeps going. And um, We'll see. They say that, you know, there'll be witnesses and they'll call all sorts of people, um, you know, in a very odd way in this wacky world we live in. I think Donald Trump would probably enjoy this thing going to the Senate where he has numbers, where the where the Republicans are in lockstep. And if, if they want to illustrate how ridiculous this thing is, they could um, they could do what they should what they should be doing now and they're not is being very even handed and calling witnesses on both sides and, and not rigging the system. And, um, and and one of the, one of the people that would be on the top of the list, I I would think if I was a Republican in the Senate would be, I would call um, Joe Biden to testify. And he's obviously been asked that. And in this um, article that I'm reading here from Emily Larson, says Biden says he won't testify in impeachment proceedings. Joe Biden said that he will not testify in impeachment proceedings against President Trump, a rebuke to Republican lawmakers who say they want to hear from him. No, I'm not going to let them take their eye off the ball, Biden said Wednesday, when asked if he would appear voluntarily. The president is the one who has committed impeachable crimes. I'm not going to let him diverge from that. I'm not going to let anyone diverge from that. Again, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If if anybody, if anybody could dance on the head of a pin better than Joe Biden, I'd, I'd like to see who it is. Um, to be at the epicenter of this, to be on video bragging about how, and that's why they call him quid pro Joe, bragging about how he got um, a prosecutor fired and leaned on him. And if you don't believe me, um, uh, talk to Barack. All of this is is on video. Um, his son, uh, very underqualified for the um, massive amounts of money that he got. The, the whole thing to someone with an average IQ or very little political interest stinks to the high heavens. And for somebody 
like Joe Biden to say, no, I'm not going to testify. This has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with President Trump and his um, and his misdeeds. When in reality, they have nothing on Donald Trump and the very things they're asserting Donald Trump has done. Um, Joe Biden not only has done them and his son has done them, but Joe Biden is on video bragging about it. And and to be on video and audio doing these things that you're accusing Donald Trump of doing and then having the chutzpah to say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to um, go to any uh, impeachment proceedings and be asked questions is, is really that is quintessential Joe Biden. Um, that really is Joe Biden. And if anybody can pull off that tap dance, uh, I think Joe Biden can, although there was a little crack in the armor um, recently in uh, Iowa, there was a little dust up with a, uh, with a democratic constituent that drew a parallel and said, um, you know, I don't like Donald, I'm paraphrasing again here, but I don't like Donald Trump, but all the things he's being accused of in this impeachment proceedings, you did and your son did. And, I think that's hypocritical. Joe Biden um, kind of lost it and um, got in a little dust up with a guy, called the guy a liar publicly. Very tense situation. Um, a lot of people were there. It was kind of a town hall, I believe. And um, then he further went on to insult the man. And it, it was it was an embarrassing moment for Joe. It was not a good thing for him furthering his campaign. He tried to... Uh, to recover and pivot a little bit. But if you hear the audio, he doesn't do all that well. So yeah, if I'm Joe Biden, I, I don't want to be asked about this on the debate stage. I don't want to be asked about this um, by uh, a representative in the Senate. And I certainly, if if the smoke clears and he gets the nomination, I certainly would not want to go against Barack, or excuse me, um, Donald Trump and have him make mincemeat of, of me. And, and that's probably what he would do. So um, I, I don't know how Joe Biden survives this, but we, we live in a pretty twisted world. Um, so if, if he does indeed survive this and doesn't have to be asked, answer any questions under oath about this and gets the democratic um, nomination and actually has the, uh, the guts or stupidity or both to use it as a campaign um, ad or, or a campaign rallying cry against Donald Trump as bizarre and surreal and out of body. That would seem to me, I think in this day and age, it's, it's totally consistent with many of the things I see out there. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it all happened, I, I really wouldn't. Um, we're going to take a break in uh, in a minute. On the other side of the break, I'm going to uh, start into um, this article that I saw. It's it. I'll tease it here a little bit. It says woke Democrats and pundits offended by all white 2020 Democratic debate lineup. So we're going to pursue that a little bit when reshaping America continues. We are back, and um, before we go to the uh, woke Democrats story. Um, I wanted to close the loop on uh, the last story. I think um, because of Mr. Broadcast Engineer Extraordinaire here, we finally found the reason why Biden won't testify in his uh, in in the impeachment proceedings. So uh, let's listen to one of the reasons he may not want to testify. Yeah. Um, I remember going over convincing our team, our others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and uh, and I was going supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was what six hours. I looked. I said, "I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money." Oh, son of a! <laughs> got fired, and they put in place someone who was solid. And from the horse's mouth, 
you have just heard why Joe Biden is a little nervous about testifying in front of anybody, I would think, but particularly um, Senate Republicans. Um, very interesting choice of words there. Um, he used the word solid. We got somebody in there that was solid. Uh, love to know what the definition of solid means. Um, th- this whole thing is 180 degrees out of phase. During the Obama administration, people were being purged from positions um, such as this because they were very anti-Russia. They were trying to actually clean up Ukraine. And the solid person that Joe Biden wanted in there is somebody that would take the heat off the investigation of his son. So I guess, you know, if you're a Biden, the new guy that came in was solid because he uh, called off the dogs on your son. But I don't think that really um, is too solid if what we're looking to do in one of the most corrupt areas of the world is purge um, their government and and people that we do work with um, in consort to try to uh, fight Russian aggression, which we, we definitely have a uh, vested interest in doing that. Um, those individuals are certainly not solid. Um, the, the folks that Barack Obama and Joe Biden advocated for. So I think that was very interesting. Thank you, Mr. Broadcast engineer for finding that and uh, inserting that. So um, we're going to go on to, the article that I teased here, woke Democrats and pundits offended by an all white 2020 Democrat debate lineup. Um, I, I think it was really interesting. I, um, I saw Cory Booker That's another guy that can dance on the head of a pin um, who, you know, when Kamala Harris dropped out of the race, um, probably because she just couldn't get over, you know, one percentage point. That's kind of a good indicator that you might want to drop out at some point in time. Um, he railed uh, against, you know, um, how the, the field is fast becoming more and more white. And it's a shame. Um, last I checked in, in this competitive world we live in, Cory Booker was competing against uh, Kamala Harris. Now I, I, I do think, um, it is a bit of a stretch to think that he had anything with to do with her anemic uh, polling, and I don't I don't think he dusted her up too much in uh, in the debates. But I think it's very interesting that um, you know as competitors, that is the very definition of what you're trying to do. You're trying to winnow the field down from fifteen to ten to six to three, and only the best candidates survive, uh, according to the. Uh, the voters in whatever primary you happen to be in. So this is all kind of surreal to, to watch Cory Booker lament the fact that um, um, Kamala Harris is out of the race. And it's very indicative of the, um, the white middle age problem that the, uh, that the Democrats seem to have. Um, Last I checked though, even though the field is, is getting smaller, they still have, Representative Tulsi Gabbard, um, Cory Booker, who we just mentioned, Andrew Yang, um, certainly not African-American, but he is Asian, and uh, Ulian Castro, um, who is Hispanic. Um, that's a fair amount of, uh, let me just use the word that, that Democrats use, diversity in the, um, in the debate process. But if you look at all of those four, um, and add Kamala Harris to that for, uh, you know, a very healthy amount of these folks didn't poll over 1%. And um, I think it is the epitome of an affirmative action type of a mindset to to rail against, I don't know, I, I don't really know who you'd be railing against. Um, is... This is rather bizarre to me, and many things that liberals do are rather bizarre to me. But I don't know where this venom is is going towards, or who's to blame, other than those five candidates um, basically sucking and not getting over a certain percentage, and 
some other candidates who I don't really care for too much, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, competing well in the Democrat um, debate process and and garnering, at least be it polls, um, a, a, a healthy number. So I, I, I don't really, I, I mean, I don't really know what Joe Biden is supposed to do. Is he supposed to be... Um, is it, is he supposed to try to be a crummy candidate? So the candidates with anemic numbers who happen to be people of, of one color or another, um, rise to the fore. I, I really, I just don't understand it. If, if, if there was a concerted effort to chop the legs off any of those folks in a racist type of way or a nefarious type of way, then I could see people having a problem, but it, it just really kind of seems to me that, you know, the, the three aforementioned top dogs that I uh, just spoke of seem to know how to do this a little bit better than the people that are getting 1% and half a percent and things of that nature. So, um, you know, and, and again, you know, I'll kind of tie it in a bow, crying over this as a Democrat is pretty silly because in a competitive format, an African American was the leader of uh, the Democrat party and went on to be the president and subsequently the leader of the free world for eight solid years. So um, this whining that the the field is, is a little less colorful now because Kamala Harris is gone and the four remaining minority candidates aren't really polling too well. I, I just don't understand the point. I don't understand the anger, the aggression, the the whining, and who it's targeted towards. Because a few short years ago, Barack Obama, love him or hate him, showed us all how to do it. Um, he won in the Democrat primary. He beat Republicans twice after, you know, um, arguably a, a pretty rocky, in, in, in some estimations, first four years. Um, he was ripe to be beaten, and he won again. So he knows how to do it, and he did it. And, um, you know, I, I think we focus a little bit too much on color, and this is just a, a, a competitive environment where a African-American man cleaned everybody's clock on both sides of the aisle for eight solid years, love him or hate him, he got it done. So um, it can be done. So I really don't know where um, these people that are whining are going with this. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here and go to a very interesting um, article that I saw. And uh, I actually heard some um, uh, news reports from some Colorado stations on this. And this is something we've discussed on the show um, a few shows back as far as these red flag gun laws, which are extraordinarily problematic. Um, the title of this article is uh, Several Colorado Sheriffs Say They Will Not Enforce Red Flag Gun Laws. And um, I'll go on to read some of the uh, more salient points of this article, but these these brainiacs in Colorado um, uh, they, they call it, um, what is it like a, a Sandy hook type, um, law, which is a, a takeoff on the Sandy hook tragedy. Um, and I'll go on to, to get into the nitty gritty of this, um, of what these sheriffs are saying they will not do. And what Josh Horowitz, the head of coalition of stop gun violence said, but, um, superseding all that, these wizards of smart, put this uh, bill into law and it will be enacted uh, in a few weeks, January 1st. But there's one small problem. No one wrote a protocol for what happens when the gun owner refuses to give up their gun. Small detail, uh, right? Uh, did you really think, and I know that um, we discussed it on the show a couple shows ago um, when Beto O'Rourke was asked that question, like, how are you going to get the guns? Um, and again, he did the dance on the head of a pin type thing and gave some really tortured uh, answer that, um, you know, I believe in uh, the American citizen that when someone knocks on his door, uh, he or she will obey the law and just 
hand over their gun. So yeah, I, I, I really don't know what planet Beto is living on. Maybe the community that um, he lives in is going to do this. But if you've ever seen the map um, of the red, red state, blue state, or red county, blue county, when they do the counties, it's pretty, if I'm a Democrat, I'm pretty nervous about that. Um, those massive swaths of red counties um, that just merge from one state to another state to another state, they ain't giving up their guns without due process. We have a constitution and in this country, um, we have due process and we have a system by which we get rid of your gun unless you are in the act right then and there of committing a crime. And then law enforcement has absolutely every right to disarm you for the public good because of the immediacy of the situation. But um, this is why these red flag laws seem, and I'll say that in quotes, seem to make some degree of sense. But in reality, they're extraordinarily problematic because they turn our constitution on its ear and they presume guilt before innocence. And that's not what our country is based on. We are presumed innocent until proven guilty. And as I said before, I'm not so naive to think that a gun owner has rights if he is or she is mowing down people. Uh, Law enforcement does come up and stop that situation, uh, thankfully, pretty quickly. But um, this is much different than that. And uh, I'll go on to read um, some of the problems with this, but they, they are calling these, um, it, it, it's really kind of funny. The, um, the left seems to bend over and contort into pretzels when it comes to sanctuary cities for illegal aliens, many of which have committed crimes in addition to the original crime of being in the country illegally. Um, they think sanctuary cities are a good de- uh, a good idea and they fight tooth and nail for the rights of mayors and, and various people in that city to continue to um, make those cities sanctuary cities for illegal aliens. However, when folks on the right start using the term that I'm going to read here, Second Amendment sanctuaries, um, they have a big problem with it. And I, I just think that's fascinating. I mean, if, if you look at the juxtaposition of those two ideologies where you would march in the streets for the rights of an illegal alien, many of which who have records and have served notice to decent people that I have a gun or I'm going to come after you and do bodily harm. And as long as I'm in the confines of this quote unquote sanctuary city, you can't do anything about it to fight for that folk, that person's right. And then to doggedly fight against another citizen who says, um, I live in a second amendment sanctuary, which is really kind of not accurate. We all live in a second amendment sanctuary. It's called our constitution. Um, that does transcend municipalities, but they, the mere fact that they have to use that word second amendment sanctuary is in direct opposition to this law that's going to be starting in a few weeks. So it says the model red flag law was written after the Sandy hook school shooting in 2012. Currently 17 States in the district of Columbia have adopted um, these laws One of the authors of the law is Josh Horwitz, who I um, alluded to earlier. He is the head of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. He states this is a law that is temporarily, is a temporary civil restraining order that allows family members or law enforcement to um, go and um, get your guns before a tragedy occurs. Um, They go to a judge. And I'm sure that they can find a a very anti-Second Amendment liberal judge. And if this judge agrees and issues um, uh, an edict to law enforcement, law enforcement does have to go and remove the firearms. um, And this firearm will be taken away from the citizen who has absolutely committed no crime whatsoever for a period of 7 to 21 days. And then they'll come back to court and there'll be a full hearing 
it says if the person in fact is dangerous to oneself or others, the firearms will be kept by law enforcement in perpetuity. Um, and they will not, well, not perpetuity, but they will not have access to them for one calendar year. Um, again, at first blush, this may seem like this is going to, um, prevent a crazy person from taking a gun, going to the village square and shooting people. But as I stated before, this is a, this is the quintessential, um, example of guilty until proven innocent. And that's not what this country is about. And if and there, the landscape is littered in these 17 municipalities or excuse me, 17 States, um, where ex-wives have, um, trumped up charges against their ex-husbands to get them in trouble. Hey, go to his house. He's got guns. He's crazy. I heard him say this. And little more than that has to happen for you to get the knock on the door. Hey, I heard you got some problems, some challenges. Can I come in and talk to you about your guns? That's not the country we live in, ladies and gentlemen. That is not the country we live in. And the the temptation uh, or the... Uh, to, to do something like that to your fellow citizen is just too tempting. It's too rich and it's, it's happening all over the place. And you could see how easy that could happen. If you're in a custody battle, if you're in a messy divorce situation, you have an estranged boyfriend or girlfriend, doesn't really matter gender. Um, this is extraordinarily problematic. And, um, the next paragraph goes on to say dozens of Colorado sheriffs are ready to defy the law, including Steve Reams of Weld County, which is now a Second Amendment sanctuary. Now, again, I'm going to pause on that. The mere fact that we have to use that terminology, Second Amendment sanctuary, when our entire country from sea to shining sea should be a Second Amendment sanctuary, is really very troubling. But in again, in states or municipalities where they have enacted laws such as this, we have to come up with terms like Second Amendment sanctuary. He says his first responsibility is to the Constitution. There are portions of the law I just flat out can't and won't do. Um, I support the U.S. Constitution, the Constitution of the state of Colorado, and then I'll enforce the laws of the state of Colorado. When those, th- when those things are in conflict, um, I have to decide which one you are going to adhere to, Reams said. Um, so this is definitely a crossroads. Um, you know, he, this Mr. Reams, um, sheriff is being told by the law, and he is law enforcement, that he is to do this if a judge taps him on the shoulder and says, um, we heard, you know, Joe Blow down the street has a bunch of guns and he's kind of said some crazy things. We want you to go there. Now, let me stop there. There have been laws on the books for decades that can go a very long way in stopping this problem without knocking on someone's door and saying, a judge told me I'm going to take your, I, I can take your guns. Where are they there? You know, the, the naivety that, that folks are just, rolling out a church, rolling out a Bible study, and then going to a tower and shooting people is, is insanity. Crazy people have been um, sending red flags and cues for decades that they are crazy people and they should not have firearms. And if you think that this law is going to do what should have probably happened years ago, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say many of these people that um, probably should not have firearms. We really don't need to get a judge to go to their house and say, you got guns. We heard you're crazy. Give me your guns. They have committed enough crimes that are on the books right now to get them in the system and get them in a, um, a database that would indicate to uh, um, people at a gun show or whatever, a gun salesperson, that this person is on a list. And, and it's all done quite legally. You cannot threaten people in the United States of America and not get in the system. So these people are in the system already. It's just that we're not enforcing 
or prosecuting people for threatening people. And we should. I mean, if, if you threaten somebody with bodily harm or a firearm or get in altercations over and over and over again, and you have a long rap sheet and you're mentally ill, um, I'm a big Second Amendment guy, but you should not have access to a gun for at least a prescribed period of time. Um, that scenario that I just laid out is far and away different than someone that has no clinic, uh, no criminal record whatsoever and has just um, second, third hand. Somebody says, yeah, this guy's kind of crazy. He's got a bunch of guns and he and he's stalking his um, girlfriend. That's not enough in the United States of America. Again, their laws get a restraining order against somebody document that they have done something that is illegal. And then we can start talking about restricting somebody's second amendment rights, but that's not what red flags are at all. So, um, Reams acknowledges he could go to jail for defying the law, but he comes to that. He said, if that comes to that, he will file a lawsuit. Um, and will determine at that point, if this red flag law that they are enacting in Colorado is constitutional. And I, I don't think it is. Um, there's another sheriff, Bill Elder of El Paso County, agrees, uh, also disagrees with the law, saying it doesn't adequately address mental health and makes the focal point the gun and not the person. Here, here, that's what I just said. Elder told um, the the folks that are uh, doing this article here, we need to have funding for meaningful mental health assessments and treatment. There's just no programs. The state hospitals are full. Um, again, uh, Donald Trump very intelligently years ago framed this argument in such a way that, um, love him or hate him. He was making perfect sense. And every time a tragedy such as this would happen and the left would come out, um, and rail for gun free zones, Donald Trump would rightly say, this is not a gun issue. This is a mental health issue. And, um, I agree with him, and so does um, the sheriff. Lastly, we will um, we will read what somebody who is a proponent of this new law has to say. Uh, Colorado Sheriff Tony Spurlock of Douglas County is a staunch advocate of the flag law. He lost his deputy, Zach Parrish, during a New Year's shootout in which a heavily armed man struggling with mental health issues had barricaded himself into suburban Denver apartment. 185 shots were fired, which left six others wounded. Um, Spurlock wished the law had been in place that night, probably a month before, and he wouldn't um, have lost his deputy. Um, and uh, this Zach Parrish, a colleague of Mr. Spurlock, his life would have been saved, asserts Spurlock. Uh, with a law like this. And as I just said a couple minutes ago, I highly doubt that this guy that was in a shootout and was involved with 185 shots fired all over the place, I'm going to go out on a limb. I really don't think that was his first time with a brush with the law. I would love to see the the amount of times um, 911 was called on this guy, mental health um uh, professionals working in consort with law enforcement, working in consort with um, the judiciary in that area, um, coming up with something to segregate this person from the rest of us until that person is deemed um, mentally healthy, or at the least uh, limit that person's ability severely to get a firearm. Uh, I'm sure all of those things could have been done uh, years, this guy didn't roll out of bed and blow 185 shots at somebody. Um, but because this gentleman was not treated properly in, in a team approach with all the professionals that I just mentioned, now we have to take people's guns away. This guy happens to be nuts. The next five guys might not be. So um, the law misses the point. And as Sheriff Elder rightly states, um, the focal point of this law is the gun rather than addressing the mental health issue that we have in this country. So uh, we're going to go to a break. We're going to come back with a, um, a little lighter 
story uh, to wrap up the show today. Uh, this is Kurt Flewelling, Reshaping America. We will be right back. We are back, Kurt Flewelling, Reshaping America. And um, as talk show hosts often do, I ran long before, and um, but I really, really wanted to get into this. And um, teases from one week to another just don't work out well, but I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to, because I really wanted to broach this um this subject and this article, and I will not be able to do it justice in two or three minutes, but I'm going to tease it because I'm going to start next week, unless um, something crazy happens, it probably will, um, with this article, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I always try to end the show light. Okay. This article uh, says Peloton bike ads are always going to offend people. So why did this one hit a nerve? And this is a, if you have not heard about it, um, I'll briefly do it in a couple minutes, but I, I do want to dig into this article because it's just wrought with all sorts of bizarre class envy and eat the rich and injustice and all the juicy things that liberals love to talk about and, and shame us for. But, um, if you've ever seen a Peloton ad, Peloton, um, they, it is a bike that is very expensive. Um, the company now has over a million subscribers and a $4 billion valuation. And, um, these, uh, these commercials are, uh, as the article says here, um, rail thin wives, um, that are, you know, trying to juggle life with their husband and their kids. And, uh, they live in beautiful million dollar homes and, and people are offended by the fact that these beautiful people are buying Peloton bikes and that this company has the audacity to market um, and try to get rich people to buy real expensive stuff. Um, to me, not a real new concept, but in this day and age of, of shaming people um and caring what other people make and what other people drive and how it's unfair and Bernie Sanders. I think it's an article that is worth pursuing and I will do that in earnest on the next show, but I will just tease you with one of the um, more juicy provocative statements in this article. And it's just replete with many of them. Um, the author of the article says Peloton's rise has coincided with a larger, more pervasive culture of wellness one that is overrun with privilege and high-end consumerism. So if that statement's not provocative enough um, and problematic enough for you, I will um, I will break it down for you in the next show and give you many other comments like this that um, many people out there seem to have. And they are, you know, quite frankly, not real happy that rich people are buying really high-end bicycles and the companies that are selling these high-end bicycles are making, you know, advertisements, commercials that involve rich people with fine art in their house and, and all sorts of things. Um, they have every right to do that. This is the United States of America. So I will, um, I'm going to hit that on the next chapter of Reshaping America. This has been Reshaping America. Kurt Flewelling, you have a great day. <laughs>